recap just the last few weeks of the Harmony of the Gospels for us as a run-up to this morning's text. All the way back in Luke 20, verses 1 and 2, if you remember, we read that one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that has given you this authority? And as Christians, we spend some time unpacking the need to operate in God's authority, not in our own authority, if you'll remember. The power to operate in the gospel, with the gospel message, is, is in his name. It's his word. It's his covering over us and his cleansing of our sins that allows us to do that. No ministry can happen apart from that reality. No, no evangelism can happen without embracing God's authority. And that means that sharing the gospel must be bathed in prayer. And, and, and you or me or who, whoever's doing the evangelism, whoever's going out needs to be prayed up before they speak up. We need to, we need to do that. Now that it's, we're coming into 2024, man, I feel old. We're coming into another year and, and we need to share the gospel. We need, we need to be sharing the gospel, bathed in prayer. Whoever's evangelizing, we need to pray up before we speak up. We saw that Jesus' own earthly ministry had a life cycle. If you'll remember that, he inaugurated the start of his official ministry. He poured himself into his Talmudim, his disciples, and then they took on responsibilities. And that ministry drew a greater following. But now we've come to the final phase of this ministry as it pertains to Jesus' earthly ministry involvement. He's still involved, by the way, not to say that he's not involved now. He's still involved. He's enthroned in heaven. He's, he's watching over and, and in the midst of all that we are doing as the church. Um, Jesus will continue and is continuing to direct us, to resource us, to encourage his ministry in the world, even now through us. And I love that. That's a privilege. I think too often Christians, we feel like it's a burden to us, but it's actually a privilege. And we can see that at this phase of his ministry, the gospel was on the cusp of going beyond Israel and into the known world for the purposes of God's redemptive plan. That synergy that would come from his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is going to cause his ministry now in the hands of the apostles in the New Testament to, to, to go and spread it throughout the world, right? The, the apostle, by the way, just apostolos means a person who is sent with a message, a particular message. And Jesus drew near and entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, and, and apparently my family is texting back and forth this morning. If you're hearing the little ding, 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 ding. Yeah, you just tell grandma you can't talk right now because it's, it's messing with my brain. <laughs> my mother-in-law. Okay, thank you. <sighs> There's no way to silence this thing beyond where it is today. Okay, T please tell her emphatically, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Okay. <laughs> oh man, Jesus drew near. He entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right? We, we saw that uh, clear and, and open pronouncement of his messianic identity. Uh, that was the very hub of those who hated Jesus there in Jerusalem. They were planning to kill him. 
uh, they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and there were many coming from the region of the Galilee where Jesus had performed most of his miracles in ministry. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem by way of a formal presentation, which included the riding on of the donkey, uh, which was in keeping with the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And the crowds were waving the palm branches. Remember, we talked about this, the Hosanna and the palm branches, which was a symbol of national Israel, just like our stars and stripes would be for us. And they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus warned them. He said, while you still have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And Peter remembered at one point, he said to him, Rabbi, look, hey, you remember when you, you cursed that fig tree over there? Look, it's withered up. And we talked about Israel and God's plan for her is not abated as some would have us believe, nor have the events of the past, nor the punishments and persecutions that the Jews have endured. Have, they've not negated in any way God's covenant promises to Israel. Okay? He's still faithful. And Jesus goes on to tell uh, parables that indict the religious leaders are just kind of getting a run up to this morning, going, going over the last several weeks. Uh, they are a blight on the nation of Israel, leading many astray. And Jesus tells them about an owner of a vineyard and uh, that he will come and destroy the tenants and give that vineyard to others because of their neglect and mismanagement. And when they heard this, they, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them, right? And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and everyone who falls upon that stone will be broken to pieces. And whenever it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so the religious leaders tried to trick and trap Jesus in his words. And we read Jesus's admonition that we ought to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But more importantly, we need to render under God that which is God. That coin had Caesar's image on it, so it belonged to him. You bear the image of God. We belong to him. And then last week in a standalone sermon, we talked about the birth of Christ and the way in which it dovetailed with the pro-life position. And this week we're back in the harmony of the gospels and a different group of religious leaders are now taking their turn at uh, trying to trip up Jesus and use his words against him. So uh, we're going to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three different gospel accounts of this. And we'll start with Matthew 22, starting in verse 23 to 33. So here's Matthew's account of, of today's section of the harmony. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among them, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so the second and the third, down to the seventh, after, all, after them all, the woman died. So in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. <laughs> you can just stop right there. I love it. Uh, you're wrong um, because you, neither, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Here's Mark's account. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 17. Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us, uh, for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, then a man must uh, take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife, and when he died and left no offspring, and the second took her and, and, and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And, and the seven, all the way down, left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Love it. Love it. Luke's gospel. This is the, the third one. Uh, Luke 20, 27 to 40. There came to him some of the Sadducees who denied that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies, Having a wife but no children, the man must take a widow, take the widow, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living for all who live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Smart move. So to this point, we've largely been dealing with the Pharisees and the Herodians. This has been the two main groups of people that are antagonizing Jesus. Neither group was particularly nice, and Jesus generally didn't have good things to say about either of them. But into the scene now steps another contingency of religious leaders and figures that we haven't really dealt with as much. This is a group called the Sadducees. And during the New Testament era, the Sadducees were a religio-political group that held a great deal of power among the Jews in Israel. They confronted Jesus on occasion Attempting to try to trip him up. We see it in Matthew 16, 1. We see it in Mark 12, 18. And then they later opposed the preaching of the apostles, which if you go to Acts chapter 4, you'll see that. They're still after the gospel. They're still trying to shut down the gospel. 
The Sadducees sometimes in, in historical records are called Zadokites or Zedokim. And they're thought to have been founded by a man named Zadok in the second century BC. But there's a, there's a whole nother, it's like this crazy history thing and how the historians disagree about this. And I didn't do too much of a deep dive and I won't go deep on this, but um, the, the Sadducees, um, Sadok, uh, the, the word means to be righteous. The Sadducees were an arist aristocratic class, basically, connected to everything that happened in the temple in Jerusalem. They tended to be very wealthy and, and tended to have powerful positions in the religious system, including, generally speaking, the chief priest's role and the high priest's role. Um, it, was, it was not normal for a Pharisee to ascend to that. The, this group kind of held the keys to the kingdom. And so they held the majority of the 70 seats in the ruling council we call the Sanhedrin. And they worked really hard to keep the peace by agreeing with the decisions that Rome passed down because they were under Roman control at that time. And they were generally more concerned with politics than they were with religion. And because they were accommodating to the Romans, they were fairly wealthy and upper class as a result. And they didn't relate well to the common people of Israel. As a result, the people did not generally hold them in high opinion. <laughs> the, the commoners related better to those who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Though the Sadducees held majority seats in the Sanhedrin, history indicates that much of the time, they ended up having to go along with the ideas of the Pharisaic minority because the Pharisees were more popular with the people than they were. And as we profile this group, there are some additional points of interest for us. Um, I want you to know that the Sadducees were extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in that. And because of that belief, the Sadducees strongly resisted the apostles' preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. They denied any kind of afterlife, holding the, the view that the soul perishes at death, and therefore there's no penalty or reward for anyone's earthly life. Accordingly, they deny the existence of a spiritual world. They don't, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They were the ultra-liberal theologians of their day. They were the, the Harvard and Yale guys that, in the theology department who don't believe in God. I know. How's that working out for them? It's not. It doesn't make any sense. The Sadducees, what they did do, uh, and not, not all of them were priests, by the way, but many of them were. The Sadducees did preserve the authority of the written word of God. But for them, that generally only extended to the first five books of Moses. They didn't even count anything beyond that, really. It was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that was it for them, pretty much. So just to sum up this group, the Sadducees are extremely self-sufficient to the point of denying God's involvement in everyday life. And as a result of their views, they denied the resurrection of the dead. Because of their presuppositions, these Sadducees strongly resisted the apostles' preaching that Jesus had risen from the dead. They couldn't, they couldn't buy into that. They denied an afterlife, 
holding that the soul perished to death. They denied the penalty and rewards uh, of an earthly life, just like they denied the existence of the spiritual world. They denied that there were angels and demons. They were just ultra left. They were hard left. So since the Sadducees left no written descriptions of themselves, all we know is what they believed and what they did and what's found in the Bible and some secondhand sources. And according to most historical records, including that of Josephus, the Sadducees were known to be, you ready for this? It's probably not a surprise, rude, arrogant, power hungry, and quick to dispute with those who disagreed with them. Yeah. They ceased to exist as a group in AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. Never came back. So again, Remember that the Sadducees did not believe in any kind of resurrection from the dead. And that's why they were sad, you see. Learned that in, in Bible school as a child in a Baptist church and have never forgotten it and have told it to everybody I can. That's why they're sad, you see. It, 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 since no other group has been able to take down Jesus here in the text, it was their turn. And they failed miserably just like the others did. This is what happens when you come at God in the flesh. You don't win, ever. Remembering, they, they, they held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and, 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 and that is precisely what Jesus goes after in the conversation. So um, the trap that they set, Jesus masterfully deals with their attempts to ensnare him in his own words. This group presents a scenario to Jesus where seven different brothers in one family have all been married to the same woman at different times. And each brother in order has died and, and then the next one marries her. So this brings us to a concept in the scriptures that we, we don't often talk about. It's called the law of Leverite marriage. And the word Leverite has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It comes from a Latin word much later, um, lever, which is a husband's brother or the, or the woman's brother-in-law. And so in ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow and provide an heir for her, for the deceased. But if you're living in an agrarian society where it's incumbent upon you to actually get out and work the fields in order to have food and take care of the animals because that's what you have to do, you, 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 the, the widow is looking for a, a man after her husband has died to take up the, that yoke, take up that um, responsibility. Otherwise, she's going to become destitute really fast and, and have to beg and, and possibly other things as well. So this idea of um, leverite marriage or leverite marriage in ancient times, again, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. So a widow would marry her brother-in-law and the first son produced in that union was considered to be the legal descendant of the dead husband and, um, and would take, take the family name. So we see, if you want to look at this this week, if you want to go do a deep dive, um, Mark, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, and then also Mark, Genesis 38, because we see a couple of examples in the Bible of leveret marriage or leverite marriage. The first is the story of Tamar and Onan in Genesis 38. 
And the other example we see in the Old Testament is the story of Ruth and Boaz. So marriage is, <coughs> marriage is always supposed to be between one man and one woman in an exclusive covenant relationship. We, we're agreed on that, yeah? Okay. We see this, um, the marriage is, is, is for life to one spouse at a time. Um, we don't get other, we're not going to get into all the other scenarios of how marriage works in our culture today. We'd be here for days and days. But what we find out in the Bible is that marriage doesn't carry over in the life to come, at least not in the same way we experience it here on earth. And I got to tell you, when I, when I think about that all this week, I've been reading and thinking about this and then, and then Jen will walk by my office door and I'm like, that's weird. I've just been married to her for so long. Like, we're not going to be married? That's weird. It's not bad. It's just strange. It's not something that I can conceptualize at this point on the timeline. But this is what the Bible says, okay? So, um, yes, you will know your spouse in heaven if he or she is a believer. <laughs> if they're not a believer, you've got some work to do, okay? You got some work to do. But you will know your spouse if, if he or she is a believer in Christ. But in the life to come, all who put their faith in Christ comprise this entity called the bride of Christ. A single entity made up of all born again persons who have ever lived. And so we are collectively the bride of Christ. And the, and the guys, they're still struggling with this. It's like, what does that mean? How, how am I part of a, a, the bride? Yeah, he's the bridegroom. We're his bride. But going back to the Sadducees, the gotcha that they're trying to perpetrate on Jesus comes at the end of their mythical scenario when they pose this question to him. Having been married to all seven brothers at some point, in the afterlife, Jesus, in, in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? And again, remember that this religious sect doesn't believe in an afterlife at all. It's a very disingenuous question. So Jesus sets them straight. As always, Jesus is masterful in handling the religious crowd that only wants to undermine him. They thought they'd come up with a real stumper to ask Jesus, but he just blew him out of the water with his answer. He cuts through the hypothetical and teaches the reality of the resurrection. And I love this bit in the next section of text. Jesus' actual words here to the Sadducees, he says, you are badly mistaken. You, you've really bombed this. Gosh, you couldn't be more wrong. The Greek actually makes it emphatic in pointing out the idea that their theology would lead astray, would deceive, and would cause one to wonder about aimlessly. So I, I thought that was pretty interesting. So Jesus just puts the exclamation point right on this. The Sadducees believed that this scenario would surely stump Jesus. In fact, they were sure they'd set this great trap for him insofar as Jesus would be found ultimately advocating for adultery. That was their ploy. See, the Sadducees set up their story so that she would be in a polygamous sect in the afterlife. They just slap Mormon on there, you know, just poof, uh, right? But instead, Jesus let them know they didn't know God's word very well at all. Clearly don't know God's word. 
They wrongly assumed that the resurrection would be exactly like the life in this present world. And yes, there will be continuity and knowing other people from our life on earth, but there will be no marriage for us in heaven with our former spouse or spouses, for we will be glorified before the Lord and collectively as the body of Christ, we will be betrothed to him. So let me give you some advice. Never go against a Sicilian when death is on. Oh, wait, no, this. Sorry, that's a, that's a movie quote. Um, um, never fall into the trap of thinking that you're smarter than God. Don't fall into that trap. Scripture affirms the afterlife and the resurrection from the dead in Daniel chapter 2 and in Luke 16. And, and though we don't have all the details about the life to come, it's, it's in the Bible. You can't escape it. The Apostle John tells us we're going to receive glorified bodies like the one Jesus has. How many of you just can't wait to have a glorified body? Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm, I'm coming into that season of aches and pains. Where did that ache come from? I didn't even do anything today. Where, where did that, what is that about? Right? I, I just can't wait to have a new body. And, and, and beyond that, man, he, he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. So a lot of this is just speculation on our part. We don't even know exactly what this is going to be like, but we know that God is good and we trust him. We, we, we do know that God is the God of the living. So, so the question for you is, are you alive in Christ Jesus? That's the question. There's only one way to gain that life, and it's only through the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus clearly says, that the dead are raised. So, so that means death is not the end. And he uses Moses, who the Sadducees claimed as their own guy, to undermine their position, as we've seen. But I just, I, I just love to pile on some additional evidence from God's word to seal this case shut this morning. So let me just give you a few different uh, sections of scripture here. First John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is, this is the Apostle John. He says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty black and white. Again, John, most of these are actually the Apostle John. John in John chapter 11, 22 to 27 um, He's, Jesus is asked, even though I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to the woman, your brother, this is Lazarus. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, we, we know he's going to rise at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And you go back to John 3, 13 to 15. Jesus is speaking here and he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on him may have eternal life. 
People get so confused about that because you remember you go back to the Exodus wanderings and, and they had the, the, God told them, make an image of a serpent and put it on the pole because they were being bitten by poisonous snakes and being killed. And it was this really weird command because they were not supposed to make graven images. And here's God saying, make a serpent and put it on the pole. This is going to be really counterintuitive for you. But this is the only way you're going to have salvation in this, in this context. And so God tells him, put, put it up on the pole. And when you look at it, when you, when you look to it, you will live. And it's a matter of faith. It's, it's, it's one of those foreshadowing moments of the gospel. It's going to be by faith. You're going to have to trust the Lord. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. See, unless you believe in Jesus and accept him as Lord overall, you will live in a state of condemnation before God Almighty. You'll be alienated from the life that is in God. And if you die physically in that state, you'll go straight to hell. But God made a way out for any who desire to repent and receive grace. He sent his one and only son to die in our place that we might receive eternal life. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death we deserve to die. And so we use this Latin phrase. It's so funny. I, I didn't know that I was going to have this impact on my oldest son, Noah. We, we talked about in the men's ministry for a long time, years and years ago, about this phrase in Latin, memento mori. It's a, it's a phrase that means always remember death. It, it means you're not going to live in this body forever. Everybody dies, 10 out of 10 people. You're part of the ultimate statistic. Unless Jesus comes, we're all going to die. And Noah took a hold of that as a, as a young man in his early teens. And then he got a tattoo that says it. And I'm like, I'm, okay, I'm not sure. Uh, okay, that's not for me, but okay, all right. If it helps you remember <laughs> to, to honor the Lord. Um, okay, but don't lose sight of your mortality. Never forget that you live in a fallen world. And again, unless the rapture comes for the church first, and, and I'm ready, I'm, I'm good to go, um, we're all going to die at some point. You and I are part of the ultimate statistic. 10 out of 10 people die. And we need to prepare accordingly. Daniel says this. I'll just give you a couple more verses here as we wrap up. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Isaiah 26, in verse 19, Isaiah says, your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust Sing for joy. Your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then, and then it, it changes the tone here because this is God speaking directly. He says, come my people, enter into your chambers. What chambers would those be? The wedding chamber. Enter into your chambers and shut the door behind you. Come in and hide yourself for a little while until my fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood that is shed upon it and will no more cover its slain. There's an option for a second life. 
true life in the presence of God and his angels and of the saints of old. Or there's what behind, what's behind door number two? True death. Death away from the presence of God, away from his angels, away from every good thing that you've ever known. So you can live once and die twice, or you can die once and live twice. If you haven't made that choice already, I urge you to settle that today because time is running out. A new year is upon us. Will you use it for Jesus' kingdom purposes? Let's pray. Lord, on this eve of a new year, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit afresh, that you would use us for your kingdom purposes. We do know, we believe that time is running out, that this is the generation that is so likely to see your coming again. And Lord, we just want to be bold for you. We want your words to be in our mouths and upon our lips as we speak to people who do not know you. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be winsome. Lord, open up the door to conversations for us. We want to be found faithful in your side, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, Jesus is the living one, not the God of the dead. He did not refer to himself as the God of persons who no longer exist like the Sadducees did. He's not the God of those who, over whom death has won and death is still reigning. No, he is the God of the living. We have received life in him. We've received a covenant and a promise from God that can never be revoked, revised, or dissolved. So let's go out of here and into the new year with boldness and in a heart that loves and and a heart that's anticipatory of Christ's coming. Jesus is coming for his bride. Make every effort to be ready. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. And Happy New Year.